Thanks for being with us this morning. Well, if you are a drone operator, you likely know that there are now new federal rules in effect as of today. And it has to do with flying commercial drones, drones of a certain size. But the rules are getting some mixed reactions. And joining me to talk a little bit more about what this means is Ryan Morasowicz, who is senior counsel at MLT Aikens and chair of the Outdoor Adventure Law Practice Group. Ryan, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill. My pleasure. Uh, What do you think about the new rules as far as uh, what's in place as of today? Well, it's fairly interesting because on one hand, the, the new rules make it a little more difficult for drone operators and especially just recreational drone operators, just you and me flying out for fun. Uh, make it a little more difficult to properly license yourself and actually get registered to be able to fly a drone. But once you have those proper registrations, where you can actually fly legally has actually been loosened up a little bit. So it actually provides more areas where you can actually fly your drone legally than it was in the past. And it's for it's two fifty grams, which anybody I suppose who has a drone would know where the sizing is. So it's it's above two hundred fifty grams. Is it that you need to, to follow these rules? If not, you don't need to register the drone. That's correct. Yes, if you have a, I think they call it a micro drone. So anything below two hundred fifty grams is not subject to this new licensing. They basically say just fly it safely and don't endanger other people or other aircraft. And also for anything over 25 kilograms, which is obviously fairly large, that's not subject to the, the regulations that I'm about to talk about either. You have to get special permission and get a special certificate for flying something that large. Oh, wow. All right. So if you have a drone in that range then, above the 250 grams, maybe not above the 25K, uh, what do you need to know or what do you need to do as of today? Well, I, I would assume most recreational users, at least, are going to fall into what they call the basic operator category as opposed to advanced operator. And a basic operator, um, you're going to be a basic operator if you do basically three things. You fly in uncontrolled airspace, which is you don't have to talk to air traffic control. You fly it more than 30 meters away from bystanders, and you never fly it over bystanders. If you do any of those three things, you're an advanced operator, which obviously is a little bit more difficult to qualify for. But if you're a basic operator, what you're going to have to do now as of, well, today, June 1st, you have to first register your drone with Transport Canada before you fly it. You have to mark your drone with its registration number. You have to pass an online exam that they call the small basic exam. And once you do that, you get a pilot certificate, and then you have to present or at least have your pilot certificate with you and proof of your registration whenever you're flying your drone. And is the point of this that people were flying it, uh, doing those things, flying it over people or flying it in areas? Uh, the one that, that always stands out is flying in, uh, too close to airports. Is it the, the point of it to stop people from doing that? I believe that's correct. I mean, there was a lot of concern, I think, in the past about where recreational users particularly were flying their drones. And as you say, specifically around airports and, and heliports, too, uh, where there's the danger of the drones impacting other aircraft and causing potential catastrophic accidents. I think that was certainly a concern. And part of the problem, unfortunately, was just people weren't aware of either where these places were or what the potential dangers or hazards were. And I think forcing people to register their drone and also taking and passing this examination to be able to be certified to fly, I think is supposed to help alleviate some of those concerns. Now, of course, even if you've done all that, there are still regulations and restrictions about where and how you can fly, which I can certainly talk about, but they're a little less stringent than they were in the past 
probably because now you've had to take and pass an examination before you can fly, you're going to be able to do it a little bit more safely when you do fly. Uh, so one scenario I would think sometimes when I'm at the dog park in the evening, there's a guy who flies a drone around, but it almost seems to, even from what you've said already, that about 30 meters above people or around other people, would he then be breaking the rule if he's flying this drone over people who are at a dog park? Um, right now, yes. If he only had a basic operator license, one of the category, one of the re- requirements of a basic operator is you don't fly it over people, and in fact, you fly it more than 30 meters horizontally away from people. If you do either of those things, either closer than 30 meters or over people, you're actually an advanced operator, or be considered an advanced operator. And in addition to everything that I just said for a basic operator. In addition, the the advanced operator has to pass a different exam, the small advanced examination, but they would also have to pass a flight review by a flight reviewer. So it's almost like a driver's licensing exam with a a driver inspector for drones. And uh, are there any concerns about enforcement in that it's not as though police are going to be stationed at areas where there have been complaints in the past of drone use? Or is somebody, are we now going to have people calling 911 saying, oh, I think somebody's breaking a drone rule? Well, I'm not entirely clear how the enforcement mechanism is going to work in practice. Certainly, if there is a risk to life and limb, I I wouldn't be surprised if people would call 911, especially if you actually see a drone buzzing a plane or a helicopter or something. But what's interesting is Transport Canada actually has an online form where you can submit unsafe drone operations, um, provide as much information as possible. And I gather they're going to be following up on those for potential regulatory action. And there's fairly significant fines now that have been introduced as well with these new regulations. And so what are the penalties if you get caught breaking these new rules? Well, again, for, for basic operations, at least, the, the penalties are up to $1,000 if you fly your drone without your certificate, your pilot certificate, up to $1,000 if you fly an unregistered or an unmarked drone, up to $1,000 if you fly where you're not allowed, and even up to $3,000 for putting aircraft or people at risk. And the flying where not allowed is the, the interesting one, because as I mentioned, even though there's these new rules about where you can and cannot fly, they're, they're still fairly significant. So, for example, if you're flying your drone recreationally, you have to fly it where you can see it at all times. And that means visually with your eyes. You can't be relying on a telescope or binoculars, and you can't be relying on like a video feed from the drone. You have to be able to see your drone at all times to keep it safe. You have to fly below 400 feet in the air, so no you know, towering shots looking down below you at the, at the terrain below you. And again, as I mentioned before, you have to fly away from bystanders at least 30 meters away. And you have to fly away from airports and heliports, at least three nautical miles from airports and one nautical mile from heliports. And what's interesting is when you actually plot all these various no-fly places, there's fairly restricted areas in Vancouver and the lower mainland where you can actually fly your drone legally. And Transport Canada itself has come up with what they call the drone site selection tool. If you have Google that, it'll be easy enough to find, which maps on just a Google map overlay the various restricted airspaces where you cannot fly your drone or where you can fly it, but you have to fly it very carefully or very cautiously. And anyone flying in those zones is, well, flying illegally or improperly, so are potentially subject to these uh, these significant fines. Hmm. So it sounds like the information is out there that people uh, can get that and know exactly where they stand. Uh, one of the other concerns, though, I've heard about to this is that doing the tests, say if you're somebody uh, like a realtor or somebody that uses drone footage, or maybe just like going to the beach and getting drone footage, uh, that the test exe- itself is very technical and includes a lot of things that 
advanced pilots might need to know, but a, a recreational drone operator might not need to know. Have you heard anything about that or, or heard that the test is perhaps a little bit too intense? Well, I haven't heard one way or the other about the difficulty of the test. Certainly the, the small advanced exam, just obviously based on its name and the requirements for it, are going to be more intense and more um, more difficult just based on what you're going to be doing there. Because if you're an advanced operator, you're going to have to be doing things like talking to air traffic control to make sure that you're not going to be you know, flying in the way of helicopters or airplanes that are coming in. So recreational users, for sure, there's there's a relatively simple and straightforward way of um, of registering and becoming licensed or certified and flying your drone. For commercial operators, it certainly is a little bit more intense or a little bit more much more of a regulatory burden. And depending on where commercial operators are flying as well, they may need more than what we're talking about here, this, the advanced or the um, or the the basic examination. In, in fact, some commercial operators would require what they call the special operation certificate, which is special permission, basically, from Transport Canada to be able to fly where they want to fly and do what they want to do. Uh, so looking at uh, the rules as they stand now uh, in effect today, do you think, are, is it a good set of rules that we have uh, at this point? I think it's a good set of rules in the sense that it requires drone operators to take a little bit more step than just unboxing their brand new drone that they bought and flying it off to take some cool pictures. There certainly are risks that are inherent with flying drones, and there's risks to both people and to other aircraft. And perhaps in the past, um, people were taking that a little bit too lightly and not really researching or understanding what those risks were and where they could and could not fly. And so these new requirements that have come in, on the front end, it requires more of especially recreational drone operators, but I think that's a good thing because it makes them stop and realize what they're doing is potentially significant, take the time to understand what the rules and restrictions are, how to fly safely, and now that they actually have all those, all that knowledge and have approved via the examinations and the certifications, then the areas and the regulations that they fly under are actually a little bit more relaxed now as compared to the past. So, you know, more education on the front end results in a little bit less restriction ongoing. All right. We'll leave it there. Uh, thank you so much, though, uh, for joining us to, to talk about this and break it down for us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Have a great morning. Well, if you have been following along with what has been happening at the B.C. legislature, you might be scratching your head thinking, what next? Well, Mike Smith has. He's written about it. It's in his uh, latest column in the province. He's also been filling in here on CKNW and talking to many of the players in this scenario. And he joins us on the line right now as well. Mike, thanks so much for being here. Um, Anytime, Jill. Where do we go from here? So you talked to Alan Mullen, you talked to Andrew Wilkinson, you've been covering this. So where do we sit now with what's happening over there? Well, the Liberals are mad as hell at Daryl Pluckus, the speaker, over the latest sort of drama over here. And all this erupted earlier in the week when Pluckus told uh, two key officials at, at the legislature, the acting clerk of the legislature, Kate Ryan Lloyd, and the acting sergeant-at-arms, Randy Ennis, that he wanted to make copies of their computers, their work computers at the legislature. Uh, They were not happy with that, but he did it. He hired an outside uh, IT company. It's called eForensic Services out of Surrey. And he brought that company in, and he copied these hard drives. And all hell broke loose about it over here. The liberals say he's out of control, he's gone too far, uh, Andrew Wilkinson, the Liberal leader, calls it a witch hunt. But Plekka said he's just 
continuing to do his job in his own way, and he felt that it was important to preserve these computer hard drives just in case information on them is required in the future because there are still investigations going on around here. And he said he had every right to do what he did, that these are public property, these computers, and he's the chief administrator in the place. These two officials report to him. And if he wants to make a copy of their computers, he has the right to do that. And he did it. So that's where it stands now. He got what he wanted. Uh, The liberals are not happy about it. They wanted him replaced. But the fact is he ain't going anywhere because you you can't get rid of a speaker just by saying you're upset about him. Yeah, and especially since the Premier and the Green Party, the NDP and the Green Party are standing by him. So that's where we stand now. <laughs> and do we, is he right? Is he correct in saying, I mean, on our computers, when you log in here, it says you have no right to privacy. It's a work computer. I'm sure the bosses here can do whatever they want with it. So is he right in saying it's a work, it's, it's government property. We can do whatever we want with it? Yeah, I believe he is right. I mean, at the end of the day, these are two uh, very senior administrators, but they report to him. Uh, they're public property. Uh, these are these legis- these computer hard drives are property of the legislature. He's the chief administrator of the legislature, and he said the reason that he wanted to do this was he was fearful of records going missing. Because one of the things that that critics of Plekis immediately said was there's no need to do this because there's a central server at the legislature. All of these computers are backed up on a daily basis, so. He- Wilkinson, for example, said that there is a secure, central, preserved record of what is on those computers already, and there was no need for Plekis to do that. But when you talk to Plekis and his chief of staff, they say, well, yeah, okay, but we've had several instances in the past where so-called secure documents have disappeared. And Mullen said, told me that it's happened on five separate occasions. Um, both hard copy documents and electronic copies of documents have uh, gone missing. So he said that in the interest of uh, securing these records, he wanted a, an independent backup of them. And I, I don't think anyone can dispute that that's his right to do it. And he's done it. <laughs> and so, and he said that the two officials involved gave their consent to do it, although, although clearly, clearly they were not happy about it. Do we know what documents he's talking about or what exactly he was trying to secure? Yeah, he was asked that, and I also asked his chief of staff that yesterday, and, and he said there were no specific documents that they were looking for. It was more a case of wanting to preserve everything just in case something on those computers is required in the future. So there are still three separate investigations going on. There's an investigation by the RCMP with two special prosecutors in place. There is a forensic audit going on that's being done by the Auditor General. And there is a so-called workplace review, which is looking into working conditions, bullying, harassment, other kinds of potential misconduct of the legislature. That's going on as well. So three separate investigations happening. He says that there's nothing specific that they were worried about or, or wanted to look at on these computers, but they, it was a case of them wanting to preserve this stuff, which on the surface sounds kind of reasonable. On the other hand, the liberals say it's just another example of the guy going too far. The other weird thing about it is they've, they brought in this outside company to do it. So they bring in a private sector forensic IT company to do this, copy these hard drives, take the hard drive, take the copies of the hard drives away 
which to me is unusual. And the liberals are, are now saying, well, where are, these, where are these copies located? Who has access to them? What is being done with them? Which I think are, are also legitimate questions. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things, and you wrote about this in the column, and, and it's been reported, is the the uh, chief of staff to Andrew Wilkinson sleeping or staying overnight yeah. to protect. I mean, nothing, well, maybe not nothing, but talk about making yourself look like you have something to hide if you feel the need to stay overnight. Was it simply well, just to keep, uh, to make sure nothing was taken or copied from the office? A lot of this erupted on Wednesday night, and the reason that it was a lot of this stuff was done at night. Alan Mullen told me the chief of staff to the speaker was that Kate Ryan Lloyd, the acting clerk, needed to use her computer during the day. She works long hours, and they did not have access to her computer until 7:30 p.m. in order to make this copy, and then it took several hours to do the copy. So this was all going on at like 10 o'clock at night. And at one point, Andrew Wilkinson, the liberal leader who was working late at the building, said that he saw Mullen and Daryl Plekis and this private sector IT guy that they'd hired walking down the hallway carrying computer equipment. And Wilkinson said that he was very troubled by that and wondered what's going on here. And he said he took out his cell phone and started snapping photos of Mullen. So just bizarre. It was 10 o'clock at night. At that point, Wilkinson's chief of staff, Spencer Spruill, uh, decided to sleep all night in his office just in case Plekis or his chief of staff started snooping around and coming into the liberals' offices and starting to copy their computers. So I asked Spruill, what did you do all night? And he said, well, I watched a couple of movies to stay awake. He said he stayed awake all night just in case the speaker tried to break into his office and copy his computer. <laughs> so I'm like, what is going on around this place? I mean, I've seen some crazy, pretty weird, crazy stuff around this building over a lot of, a lot of time, but <laughs> it's just, there's something different and new every time. Now, when you ask uh, Plekis and Mullen about that, they just scoff at that and said they had no intention of of going in and copying computers of involved with MLAs or their staff. He said the only computers they were interested in were these two computers of, of these two of, of these two key officials. That's the only the only people they were interested in. Uh, they said they also made a backup copy of Plekis's own computer. So they said there were three computers that were copied, and those are the only ones they had any intention of copying. And any suggestion that they were going to snoop around and start copying computers of MLAs or their staff is, is ridiculous, but it just shows you the level of paranoia going on around here. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, so where do we go next? And you, you've written about this, uh, that uh, reigning in Daryl Plekis is not uh, going to happen. Are we just going to have these bizarre stories and uh, late night people scurrying around the hallways of the <laughs> legislature? Well, I think it dies down a little bit now because the legislative session is over. It ended on Thursday. That was the final day. And I suspect in some ways, a lot of these MLAs are, are going to be happy to get out of there with this stuff going on. So I think with the session over, the MLAs not around, uh, I think it dies down to an extent. Uh, the next shoes to drop on this will be these continuing investigations and whether we hear any results of them. There's no clear indication of, of when these investigations are going to wrap up. The RCMP are still doing their stuff. There's a forensic audit, but it could be some time before we hear any kind of results of that. In the meantime, with the, the with regard to these copied computers, um, Mullen told me that they're not doing anything with that. They've just been put into storage, secure storage, 
and um, nothing else is being done. So I, I imagine, Jill, that it's kind of going to die down a little bit here for the next little while. But, hey, you never know. right? <laughs> like something else could blow up tomorrow. Who knows? But it, it does seem to be kind of scaling down a little bit until the next one. And, and I guess what seems odd or what is it looks a bit bizarre, like you said, it's the fact that it was was Plekis, it was uh, Mullen, it was this outside IT company. Because yeah. with the ongoing investigations, uh, if there were RCMP officers cloning computers, you might be able to get that, okay, it's part of a police investigation. Uh, but what do they do now? Now do they, what, subpoena Daryl Plekis to say, give us your copies mm. of the computers? It just seems bizarre. That's a gr- great point. One of the weird things about this is that the legislature is uh, cannot cannot be uh, um, you cannot use a search warrant at the legislature unless you have the permission of the speaker. People might remember during the BC Rail scandal many years ago, the police actually went to the legislature and executed a search warrant and, and searched some offices there. That was another very dramatic day over here, and that was only done though with the permission of the speaker at the time. So the guy in charge of the legislature is Plekis, and the cops cannot come in there and execute a search warrant or start copying computers unless they got his permission. So he is saying, his explanation is, I'm the guy in charge here, I wanted to make sure that I do this. But he also said that he's cooperating with the police. So I imagine if the police said, we want to look at these computer hard drives, he'd probably turn it over to them. Doesn't it seem odd that the speaker would have that much power, that if they, if it was somebody who wasn't cooperating with police, that they could stand in the way of the investigation? Um, no, I don't think it's weird, because it's, uh, it's just the way our parliamentary system is, is uh, set up. I mean, parliament is independent, sovereign, and supreme, and the speaker is the top administrator in the place. And there's, there's all kinds of interesting rules about the way the place works. You know, like I said, a, a police search warrant can't be executed there unless you got the, the speaker's permission. The Freedom of Information Act, for example, is, is largely does not cover a lot of the dealings going on in the, in the legislature uh, itself. So, for example, if there were concerns about privacy rights for copying these computers, for example, I don't believe that the Freedom of Information Act would cover that. So I don't think the FOI commissioner, for example, could question or do a review of what Plekis has done here in copying these computers because it's off limits from him. It's a very sort of independent uh, place and it's been deliberately set up that way under our parliamentary system. But when you got, when you got a guy like Plekis in, at the top, who's kind of like a bull in a china shop here right now, he does tend to get a lot of people upset. But at the end of the day, there's not much you can do about it because he does have a lot of power and authority. And one other thing I wanted to, to touch yeah. on as well, uh, the notes that Mary Polak took from her yeah. meeting, what's going to happen with that? Will there be any more fallout on what was said or not said? Well, that's interesting because she released 16 pages of notes from this private meeting in which she described Plekis as uh, pounding his fist on the table and saying that uh, an earlier review done by Beverly McLaughlin, the former chief justice of the country, was a stupid report and pathetic. Um, Plekis has denied some of the stuff that's in those notes, but she says that he did say this stuff. And Andrew Wilkinson, the liberal leader, told me that she'd be, wearing to, she'd be willing to swear an, an oath that the notes are accurate and even be cross-examined under oath about what she saw there, what she heard. So, you know, the, the bad blood here between Plekis and the liberals is really bad, and it's getting worse uh, they have no confidence in him at all. Don't forget, he's a former liberal a- MLA himself who turned his back on his own colleagues to take the speaker's job in the first place. 
over the Liberals' wishes, and it helped it helped Horgan become the premier. So they've never forgiven him for that, and the bad blood is just getting worse as we go forward. All right, so we will uh, hear more about this, I'm sure. Oh, Mike yeah. Smith, <laughs> thanks so much. We'll talk to you later. You bet, Jill. Thank you. Well, as of today, BC's minimum wage is climbing by $1.20. The goal, $15.20 by the year 2021. Good news, I suppose, for people who make minimum wage in the province. So let's bring in Laird Cronk, who is the president of the BC Federation of Labour, to talk a bit more about this. Laird, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, great to be here. Uh, and is this uh, pleased, I suppose, uh, from the BC Federation of Labour uh, perspective on this? Is this good news uh, for workers? Well, yeah, Jill, certainly it's going in the right direction, and we're pleased about that. This is um, one of four increases uh, annually over four years that the Fair Wage Commission, the BC NDP government put in in 2017, uh, suggested we do on our way to $15 an hour. So this is the second one of four and it takes place today and it's good news for workers making minimum wage which is you know in bc there's uh about half a million workers that make 15 dollars an hour or less which is really the poverty line so this is good news for workers in that group Uh, what do you say to small businesses uh, restaurants uh, other employers that say this is actually going to really hurt them and it could result in them cutting hours Right. So we we hear this often when there's an increase to the minimum wage. Uh, but the reality is, and we've seen this in cities in the United States as well, like Seattle and New York, who've had significant increases to minimum wage, the, the sky doesn't fall. This doesn't really um, apply that way. We know last year we had a very similar increase in British Columbia, and yet here we are, um, devoid of the skies falling and in a red-hot economy. Uh, you mentioned Seattle, though, but was there not a study done in Seattle by the city and by the University of Washington that showed that, in fact, they did cut hours and employers reduced the number of hours for people, for the low, the exact workers that were getting an increased wage? Sure. So there's all sorts of studies one way or the other. But what we know is this. When you increase the minimum wage, um, the workers that, that receive that small increase, they actually spend it in their communities. They don't put it in offshore tax havens, of course. They spend it in restaurants for food, for um, they spend it on rent, they spend it on transit to get to work. So it actually helps the local economy to put that money directly back in. Uh, unless their hours get cut or their jobs taken over by automation, in which case they don't get the increase. You know, automation is a big deal. It's coming at us. We just saw a, um, a successful uh, and, well, tentative end to uh, possible disruption at our ports over automation and figuring out between the workers and the employer how we deal with that appropriately. And that's important to do. Uh, you mentioned the number of people in BC that are working at minimum wage jobs. But when we break that down, and these are Stats Canada numbers, it's it's not the number of people, I think of 2017, that were were people raising a family or people running a family with on a minimum wage job. It was something like 2%. We're talking the bulk of these workers are under the age of 25. Many of them live at home. It's not as though this is a career for people. Well, you know, the reality, though, of those numbers, let's talk about the half million people, Jill, that are that are making $15 an hour or less and struggling to get by in a very expensive province, whether you're in Vancouver or you're in Kamloops or you're in Prince George. Uh, of those half million workers, about 60% are women, 80% are adults. I mean, we often think of minimum wages, you know, um, um, at the counter of a, of a burger joint, but 80% are adults, and many of those are the primary earner. Um, one in seven in that 500,000 worker group has a post-secondary degree, and yet they're struggling to get by. 
So this will actually help lift people out of poverty. Uh, but the numbers, uh, unless these numbers are incorrect, these are Stats Canada numbers saying that about 55.7% of minimum wage earners in BC are under the age of 25. So granted, a big bulk of that would still be cr- classified as adults. But 77.9% uh, live with their parents or other relatives, which would indicate we're talking about students. We're not talking about uh, the heads of families. Uh, well, I mean, the statistics may say that they're living with their families, but that doesn't mean they, they don't have to make a living, right? They still have to find a way to get to work. They still have to feed themselves. That doesn't guarantee that somebody else is putting food on their table. So statistics are an interesting uh, you know, thing, and you can look at them many ways. But if you're a minimum wage worker, and we put a minimum wage worker on the line with us this morning, they will tell you it's very difficult to get by in this province, and this is a good way to lift people out of poverty. Uh, so would you say, are there any negative aspects to raising the minimum wage? I think what's important, Jill, is is as this increment comes up, and let's be clear, it was the Fair Wage Commission talked about doing this in a predictable way so business can see it coming. It's been over a year that business has known this four-year process will take place. Um, we didn't see this guy falling last year. So I think what's important now is to look at minimum wage is just the basics. How do we get to more of a living or livable wage for folks so that, um, you know, they have a higher standard of living than just the absolute necessities of life? So things like the government's um, child care plan that isn't fully rolled out in the province yet can help lower those costs, bridge the gap between the minimum wage and the living wage. So where did the $15 figure come from? So the $15 figure originally, and we're going back a couple of years now, was a figure that hovered right around the poverty line. So the aspiration was, it was about 10% above the poverty line back a couple of years ago. So the aspiration was to get to that $15. So the people that are working full-time, and there are thousands that work full-time at minimum wage, um, can actually meet the poverty line level. So, but if there's no negative part to this, which I, I didn't hear you say that there was, if there's no negative aspect to raising the minimum wage, why not make it 30 bucks an hour? Well, I mean, the government did the right thing in handing this to a fair wage commission. So somewhat detached from government and said, what is what is the reasonable rate and how do we get there? And the commission said um, $15 an hour, which is uh, around the poverty line at the time, is a reasonable thing for the minimum wage to be in it. And let's do it over a four-year increment. Remember, there wasn't an increase to it for 10 years under the B.C. Liberals, nothing. So it actually fell well behind the rest of the country. And uh, this is a way to bring it up in a reasonable way. And moving forward with this, though, do you think that there are other ways, if we look only at the group of people that are, say, supporting families or people that fall into that group of really trying to make a living, that this this is the, the money that they're making. This isn't the, a job that they have while they're in school. This isn't a job that they have while they're right. still living at home with their parents. Are there not other ways through uh, tax credits, through tax breaks, other ways to help uh, make it so they're farther ahead at the end of the month? I think there are important levers government can use, you know, so there's a living wage calculation that talks about what it costs, um, really not minimum wage, what it costs really to be above the poverty line for a family. And that living wage is over $19 an hour in Vancouver. It actually dropped because of, in large part, the BC uh, government's childcare plan, again, which isn't fully implemented uh, and, and needs to be. But there are other mechanisms. We could look at transit, for example, for minimum wage workers, maybe help them with transit passes or or something along those lines so they can get to the jobs. Um, it's very difficult to do that for many people. We could look at the national 
pharmacare program that the uh, uh, Canadian NDP is talking about so that folks don't have to choose between um, buying drugs and buying food. All right, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. But Laird, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. Appreciate your time this morning. Thanks, Jill. Great to be here. Well, later this afternoon, there is going to be a gathering. It's a part of something called the Gathering Festival, talking about accessibility. And people are going to come together. This is all part of a week of events that is all about access awareness and making sure that places throughout the province are accessible to all. And Roberta McDonald is the event and outreach coordinator for the BC Access Awareness Day and joins us on the line now. Roberta, thanks so much much for being here. Thanks for having me, Jill. Good to be here. What's going to be happening this afternoon? Uh, Well, there's going to be a conversation and it's going to be a solution-focused conversation. And uh, we have uh, MLA Shane Sullivan, uh, sorry, Shane Simpson um, providing sort of a keynote before the event to discuss a little bit of what's happening at the provincial level. And then uh, MLA Sam Sullivan is going to moderate the event. And we have two past vice chairs uh, from the City of Vancouver's um, Disability Advisory Committee um, joining us, uh, Kathy Brown and Laura McEnroe. And we'll also have Yat Lee, who's the Communications Director at the Western Institute of the Deaf and hard of hearing joining us. So um, it should be a very interesting conversation because they all have different perspectives and uh, different ways in which they may have challenges um, in terms of accessibility. Um, and, and are we wrong in thinking, because I, I'm just guessing that if you ask people, do you think Vancouver or Metro Vancouver or BC as a province is an accessible place, people would probably say yes. But are we wrong in, in making that assumption that it is accessible for everybody? I would say absolutely, yes. Um, and even as um, myself personally, as somebody who, you know, is fairly able-bodied, um, I was surprised to learn, you know, in going to see some co-working spaces in Vancouver, which are, you know, growing in number given the high rents here, and finding them on the third and fourth floor of buildings with no wheelchair access. And, and these are places where a lot of people are now needing to use, you know, for work. And so right there, there's a barrier. For anybody who's in a wheelchair or who's older, you know, so, yeah. And so what are the rules when it comes to buildings and being accessible? Um, Well, those are all really under review at the moment, and that's why it's going to be really interesting um, to hear from the past vice chairs of the city of Vancouver. Um, Because with the election, um, you'd be surprised to learn um, the last um, municipal election, it took a little while for those committees to be reinstated. And um, in fact, there was a new building, um, I'm not exactly sure where it was, that, that was built, a new development without wheelchair access. Um, and usually those kinds of committees would catch that. Like something like that would go before the committee and they would say, oh, well, wait a minute. <laughs> we can't, you can't do this, right? So um, the laws are still a little murky at the moment, but um, I know at the federal level, they've just passed a new bill, um, uh, C81, that's all about accessibility, um, that has been that has been vetted by people from the disability community. So on the federal level, it's definitely happening. On, on, the, on the provincial level, they're doing things, and that's why the MLAs are coming today to talk about that. Um, and then at the city level as well, there's, there's still more to be done, you know. Um, you know, there's things like uh, yeah, Lee was saying, um, a bus shelters, for example, he's somebody who has, um, has to wear hearing aids. And if they get wet, they get wrecked. And so having a bus shelter, and if, if he doesn't have an umbrella, is important. You know, because he has an invisible disability, too. It's not always easy to say, do you mind if I stand under the, under the shelter here so my hearing aids don't get wrecked? Because, you know, these 
very expensive equipment, right? So. Yeah, and that's something I guess we don't think about as much. And I know it was also flagged or, or the idea of even the um, monitors, uh, if somebody's visually impaired and mm-hmm. you need to see what's coming up next or what's what's happening next, you would be at a bit of a loss if that's not if that's not communicated in a way that you you can understand it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think it's important to have um, caption video in elevators. I'm somebody who has a partial hearing loss, so I'm 50% deaf. But I mean, in situations where there's captioning, it's really helpful for me because I often can't hear, especially in a loud space, you know, where there's a lot of competing noise. Um, but in an elevator, it'd be great to know, what, you know, kind of what's going on for the day as well. So. Uh, it's something uh, we've talked about here um, often is uh, the idea of transit as well. And mm-hmm. when the elevator is broken, what a barrier that can be for people. Uh, are we making progress in that sense? And that's, that seems to be a bit more front and center uh, than, say, a building where the elevator might be broken. Um, well, I can't say personally whether I see that much progress in that. Like something that I would like to see, um, you, they do have the announcements about um, escalators being down, but I'm not seeing anything uh, that the hearing it made. I'm not um, hearing impaired could access. I'm not seeing um, monitors announcing the same thing at the same time. So that's something that um, Translink could definitely work on, I think. And, and what about the in, in public spaces too? Even something mm-hmm. as simple as, or it seems as simple as a curb uh, being accessible to somebody who's perhaps in a wheelchair or on a scooter and, and making it so that there's not there, there's not a break in where you can go. Right, and I and I have heard stories and read stories about that. About there are certain intersections in the city where um, the curb access is so far away from the intersection that it becomes a danger. Like it's it's actually been sort of placed, you know, maybe a few yards away, and so the person in the wheelchair has to go down onto the street and then brave traffic and then get into the intersection. Right, so that's not. That's not good planning. <laughs> um, and I know that's, you know, not every intersection, but I, I certainly think those things have to be looked at. And um, I think it's really important for, for planners to think about everyone when they're planning a community and not just the able-bodied. You know, I think it's really important. Uh, when when Vancouver Council brought in that future developments had to be built in a way where the where hallways were wide enough for wheelchairs, uh, they, they said you could no longer use doorknobs, it had to be door levers uh, because that's mm-hmm. more accessible. There was some pushback from people saying, we get that public spaces need to be accessible to everybody, but if you're building a private home, uh, you should be able to have that choice. Uh, do, do you think, mm-hmm. is there are there scenarios where perhaps... Uh, local governments, civic governments uh, have overstepped? I don't think so. I mean, I think the the disabled community should also have those choices that everyone else has, that everyone else takes for granted. You know, just, you know, a doorknob may seem like such a, a simple, a silly thing to some people, but to somebody who can't operate that kind of doorknob, it's a true barrier. And so maybe they're looking at a home and it's in their price range, but it has the old doorknobs. I mean, you know, I, I don't think that that, I don't think it's unreasonable to have that kind of legislation. I just think that for many people, they just haven't thought that through because they, they don't have that, that difficulty, right? And so, you know, when you're just walking through the world and everything is accessible to you, it, it, it may seem like it's annoying to have legislation that, um, you know, wants wider hallways. But something that's an annoying, annoyance to an able-bodied person is actually stopping somebody in a wheelchair from living life as well as they could. All right. Uh, go, going from this conversation that's going to be happening uh, later today, what, what happens to that? Is it, is it lobbying government or is it just uh, creating awareness, making sure people know that, that these are issues and that, that there are things that need to be addressed? Or what do you take from, from these events? 
Um, so this is, like I said, a solutions-focused conversation. So we want everyone in the room to feel like they can contribute. Um, we will be documenting it, and so that information will be um, available to everyone afterwards. Um, but, but the idea really is is that everyone feel that they can contribute to that conversation. And it's not so much about, you know, finger-pointing or saying, you know, you, you must do this or that. It's about how do we talk to each other? How do we talk to each other and help each other understand that these things really are are vital, and when when everybody's included in a community, it becomes a stronger community and a more vital community. And I just think that um, the more that people can have those conversations, um, the more um, connected we'll all feel. All right. And can anyone go to the event today? Absolutely. It's um, it's free. Um, and like like you said earlier, it's at the Gathering Place downtown on uh, Helmkin Street. Uh, runs from two to four p.m. And, uh, you know, we'll have some refreshments on hand for everyone as well. And, um, yeah, and what we will be doing as well, the panelists will start the conversation. And then um, everyone's going to be invited to, to um, get into breakout groups, smaller groups, so that people can really focus on what it is they want to talk about. And uh, we'll document all that. And then um, everyone will come back together and we'll share what comes up, you know. Um, for everything's going to be, it's going to be different for different folks, right? Um, so um, I'm really curious to, to see what people have to say and hear what they have to say and to hear, um, you know, what the MLAs have to say about what's going on at the provincial level as well. All right. Sounds like it's going to be a, a great discussion. Thank you mm-hmm. uh, so much, Roberta, for joining us and talking about this today. Appreciate it. No, thank you so much, Jill.